Ian, as it's the last in the series of Page 94, I just wonder, could we perhaps cover Brexit? What, the whole uh, podcast? Brexit? How long will it last? Two years or is it transitional? Let's have it longer. Let's have ten years of it. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and today we are going to be talking about contaminated blood and about Brexit. We have done an end-of-series roundup all about Brexit, which is a, a minor political issue some of you may have heard of. Uh, it's a bit niche, but we're going to cover it and see if we can get five minutes out of it. Before we do that, we are going to be talking about the contaminated blood scandal, which it has just been announced is going to have a public inquiry. Now, before we begin, a little bit of context. Uh, in the late 1970s and the early 80s, People in the UK with the blood clotting disorder, haemophilia, were given blood which was, it turned out, contaminated by both HIV and hepatitis C. Uh, This all happened as a result of a new medical product which was called Factor VIII. Uh, The previous treatments were very cumbersome, very expensive, and a new series of medicines were invented around this time which were called Factor Concentrates. Uh, Demand was very high for them uh, because they helped sufferers' blood clot and they mitigated the serious symptoms that sufferers had, so they were popular. Private Eyes' Heather Mills has been covering this story for many years and she takes up the story now. We've never been self-sufficient in producing these factors ourselves, and that's a big fault. It's been promised at various stages through the years that we would produce our own, and we never did. And it turned out that we were buying cheap blood products from the US, and these were being harvested from prisoners, from drug addicts, from people on the streets who were selling their blood. It emerged very early on that there were warnings very early on that these bloods were likely to contain a form of hepatitis. Now, in fairness, at that stage, they didn't know the slow burn and how serious this hepatitis was. But there were still warnings that this was a danger of infecting people with hepatitis. And these these were ignored over the years. The government started importing these and treating British patients and unknowingly infecting them. With initially hepatitis. With hepatitis, but... Which they knew about. And then later, of course, not that much later, it also emerged that it was infected with HIV. And HIV... Then called the, AIDS. At yeah. the time was not known about. In fact, it, it was... It was the early 80s when it was identified. It was the early 80s. So we were doing this from the late 70s after the disease had you know, made its way into Western patients, but before it was really understood. Oh, indeed, before it was understood. But the appalling thing is that even when it was beginning to be understood, we continued to import the substances right up until the end of the 80s. That is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And there were various promises by governments over the years that we would be producing our own um, safer blood products, and we didn't do it. They also resisted calls for people to use the old known safe factor. Because it was more expensive, more cumbersome, more... Yeah, all of those things. Well, you you mentioned the self-sufficiency target and that we've never been. It's extraordinary. There's an article that we found from 1987, which is charting the history of claims that Britain would be self-sufficient in producing these blood products and clotting agents. And it's, it's, it's pushed back and back and back. You know, self-sufficiency by 1977, then it gets pushed back to, you know, the early 80s, then it gets pushed back to 83, gets pushed back to 85. When the article was written in 1987, it says 
the target has now been pushed back again, even in the 80s we're talking about. Yep. And what's interesting from when we first wrote about that in 1987, I think, only 23 people had died. Now, I say only because that's pretty scandalous that 23 people had died, but it was known that 23 people had died from AIDS. It it was known that 750 had been infected with AIDS. It's now 30 years later, and 2,500 haemophiliacs are known to have died. We don't know how many transfusion patients, for example, have also died in those years. We don't know. No. They, they estimate that, that some 28,000 transfusion patients may have been infected with hep C. They're putting the figure at far lower for HIV, but actually, you know, the truth of the matter is that nobody's really monitored those transfusion patients. And I, th- I think, you know, the figures may possibly never be known for sure for those. So if you, if you go in for an operation and you have a blood transfusion, there wasn't a proper chain of saying, well, this blood came from this batch, which later turned out that it was contaminated. Uh, all the bl- you know, we know that you got the blood from here, which was imported from America. I, I, think, a... I think a lot of patients have been able to track back. But of okay. course, of course, many potentially will have died without even knowing they were infected. And particularly those with hep C. I mean, the symptoms can take many years before they surface. So this has been a, a, a scandal that's been going on since the 70s. What attempts have been made by the government to uh, to compensate people who've been infected or have fallen ill as a result of this bad procurement? The government have always been reluctant to use the word compensation because that implies liability and that's something they've always denied. So while other countries have made very generous compensation payments, some have brought prosecutions, others have had big public inquiries, others have made large payments to victims... Ours have embarked on a system of compassion and sympathy payments and now operate currently a very complex system of of ex-gratia payments to victims. Ex-gratia? Without admitting liability, but offering them sums dependent on how ill they are, their age, when they contracted the disease. It's a very complex, cumbersome system, which they are currently trying to reform. Well, you wrote in March that... um some of the victims will be paid more, but the pot of money has not been increased hugely and other people will actually be receiving less money. At that stage, that was because Jeremy Hunt was trying to head off um, a court action for those with early-stage hepatitis C who were claiming they weren't getting sufficient funding. And Hunt at that stage was saying the pot won't be any bigger, so planned increases for those with advanced hep C and those with HIV were going to be pegged back in order to make compensation payments to those with hep C. As far as I know, that is still the state of affairs. But of course, you know, we've now had the announcement of an inquiry. Jeremy Hunt is trying to say that more money has gone into the pot. Can you just remind listeners of the scope of the inquiry? What will be investigated They haven't set out the terms or or conditions yet. And in fact, um, the campaigners have already run up into an obstacle because the Department of Health is leading the the plans for the inquiry. And of course, it's the Department of Health that they hold responsible 
for the catastrophe right the way through. So they want it led by the Cabinet Office or perhaps the Justice Ministry and they want Department of Health officials to have nothing to do with it because, of course, the inquiry will be investigating Department of Health staff, ministers, you know, over the years. Um, so it would effectively be involved in investigating itself. A little element. Doctors, medics, you know, all of those people. Marking their own homework. Exactly. Do we know why the decision was made to keep it... Uh, organised by the Department of Health? Well, the the campaigners have boycotted the initial meeting and they're demanding that responsibility for the inquiry be handed to another department. What are the possibilities of investigation for a public inquiry? Can it go all the way back? Can it apportion blame? That is certainly what the campaigners want. Uh, They want to know why all these warnings were ignored, you know, since the early 70s, throughout the, the 80s, why some of them were used as secretly used as guinea pigs for trials, so that when it emerged that some of the blood products were were unsafe, they heat treated some of them, and then those new heat treated bloods were tried out on haemophiliac patients, including children, to see if they developed to see, to, yeah, to see whether the heat treatment had worked and these these blood products were safer. That's really extraordinary it's scandalous and you know these were people who weren't previously infected because they they needed not previously infected people to try it out and that's obviously that's well within living memory you know this is a this is a recent yes scandal and it's one that people are still living with what are what sort of uh numbers are there of people who uh have have been affected and who are still having to live with the consequences today and what are the numbers of people who, who've died? Initially there were nearly 5,000 haemophiliacs alone infected with hep C and some of them with HIV. Of the 1,200 who had HIV only 200 of those survive. Of the 5,000 in total about half of them survive. So we've got about 200 people remaining with HIV or with AIDS? Yeah. And we've also got about roughly 2,000, uh, slightly over 2,000 on top of that with hep C. Exactly. Who are still living with yeah, and managing both, the or condition, both. or both. Yeah. And as you say, the people who receive transfusions of blood, those figures are not known, so there may be plenty more. They're, they're which... estimated figures. No one knows for sure those figures. The estimated figures are 28,000 infected with hep C, 100 with HIV. Death figures aren't known. And is that something that the inquiry might possibly uncover? Exactly, it may explore that in in more depth. The other thing is that there was secret monitoring of of some of these patients and so that doctors and medics knew that these patients were infected, but they didn't pass that on to the patients themselves. So there was the potential for them to infect their loved ones and families for a period of time as well. Obviously, it's a good thing that there's now going to be an inquiry into this, although clearly question marks remain over whether it's the Department of Health running the show or not. Yep. Why has it taken so long to have an inquiry into this? I think successive governments really haven't wanted to get to grips with it. I mean, there have been really active campaigns. There was a World in Action first did the first documentary back in 1975. And successive governments just have refuse to come to grips with it. I mean, what 
did happen in 2009 was that despite the government and funded by charities and individuals, there was an inquiry in this country led by Lord Archer that had no powers to subpoena witnesses or compel documents, but it did a very good job at exposing a lot of what had gone on, the secret testing, the derisory payments, the ignored warnings. The problem with it was that it pulled its punches at the end and found nobody accountable or to blame. So consequently, the victims and campaigners, you know, were were disappointed. I mean, potentially not Archer's fault. It was that it wasn't a properly funded, empowered, you know, panel. Uh, It didn't have the resources, you know, didn't have all these lawyers and secretariats and everything else that you need to really get to grips with it. In Scotland, a few years later, there was the Penrose Inquiry, which was funded by Scotland, cost about 12 million. Um, It was very good at exposing the poverty and hardship and appalling treatment of victims, but again concluded that nothing could have been done differently. So campaigners met it with tears and, and called it a whitewash. From your perspective, you've been writing about this story for a very long time now. What can be done at this stage? Is it simply a matter of properly financially supporting the people who are still living with this? It is. It's it's about taking accountability. It is about apportioning blame. It is about properly compensating people whose lives have been devastated. I mean, careers ruined, you know, dependent on benefits, these miserly payments, whose loved ones have had to become their carers quite often, you know, so they've had to give up their careers as well. You know, it's it, it's an acknowledgement of, of what was done to these people. Well, it's, it, clearly, it's too late. You know, it's too late for many who have died. I mean, this is the worst NHS scandal, but it actually dwarfs lots of the other disasters that we've had in recent years, you know, where there have been public inquiries. Why have we been granted an inquiry into it now? I think a mix of events. The campaigns themselves have got up ahead of steam. There's been a lot of stories recently emerging about the plight of people, most recently a very good panorama documentary about the children at a residential school for haemophiliacs and how they were all infected. Andy Burnham, who I have to say did little or nothing when he himself was a health secretary, but who, just before he took off to become mayor of Manchester, raised the issue in Parliament, saying there was enough evidence to go to the police for a criminal inquiry into the affair, coupled with, perhaps, the fact that campaigners have got together MPs from, leaders, in fact, from all the opposition parties, who now support a public inquiry, and with, with Theresa May having blown her majority, the government really had little choice. They would have lost any debate on this. So they now had little choice but to finally um, announce the public inquiry. Heather Mills there, and you'll doubtless be reading a lot more about that in the print edition of the magazine over the coming weeks and months. Now, Brexit. Uh, Over the course of this series, we've been talking to a lot of the eyes contributors about their areas of expertise – But so many of those areas of expertise relate to Brexit, and there are plenty more questions arising about exactly how so many areas of British public life are going to function 
after the country has left the EU. Take, for example, MD Dr Phil Hammond. Britain has done very well out of EU research funding because we're very good at research. And so right. a lot of the EU budget have been used to fund research in this country and it'll be complex and different and more difficult. But, I mean, things are yet to be negotiated, but it could mean that we do less research here and it could mean companies up sticks. And privatised defence correspondent Paul Vickers. If I tell you, for example, that we spend $10 billion a year on defence equipment and services from the United States, so I mean, that's, that's kit and also, you know, the maintenance of it, mm. you'll see that a collapse in sterling is going to have a major impact. Housing correspondent Rachel Clay. In London, a quarter of the workforce working for building companies are not British, they're European. And so what will happen to them will be very interesting. The building industry's got some problems because it doesn't have enough skilled builders coming through. So it draws on foreign labour, naturally. What happens to that European labour will be very important for house building in London. And privatised tax expert Richard Brooks. The European Union and other international bodies have been the, the main drivers of any progress on clamping down on the excesses of tax havens. The UK has kind of held them back a bit, but we've been within Europe and we've been subject to these initiatives and part of them. So there has been some progress. Now, outside of Europe, there's a big risk that the rest of Europe will really come down hard on our tax havens. So, lots of questions all over the place, but there is one person who can give us some clear facts about exactly what's going on, and that is Ben Fox, who writes Brussels Sprouts. Now, one of the things he's been writing about is the EMA and the EBA. These are two uh, very obscure bodies, but they're very important. They regulate medicines and banking for the entire continent, and they are currently based in London with lots of jobs. However, thanks to Brexit, they may have to go. Here is Ben explaining where these bodies are and exactly why it should matter to us. Both based in Canary Wharf, in fairly salubrious buildings, (laughs) and employing uh, just over a 1,000 regulators. Between them? Between them, yeah. The EMA is the larger, uh, has about 800 people, most of whom are Brits, but with a a fair sprinkling of foreigners. Okay. (laughs) So these... Two agencies. What we've heard about them and what we read in the magazine is they're they're definitely leaving. Um, we can be about ninety nine percent sure that they're leaving. Uh, the government had initially said that we could keep these agencies as as part of the divorce settlement. Then the commission said, no way, Jose, they're definitely leaving in 2019 at the end of the Article 50 process in in March 2019. And following the uh, June election, the government now seems to have accepted the commission position. Although the, uh, the Greater London Assembly their chairman Jeanette Arnold said last week that uh, the status of the agencies was still on the table. Okay. So we can say with a high degree of certainty that they will be leaving. Yeah. But as with anything Brexit related, it's uh, not 100%. <laughs> well, it would seem eccentric, wouldn't it, to have European banking and medical regulation happening outside uh, the EU? It would be uh, unprecedented, right. yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way of putting it. Uh, a lot of a lot of EU law would actually be, have, have to be completely rewritten to allow it to happen. What does that mean for British banking and British medicine? 
because Britain has a really thriving pharmaceutical industry yeah. and we develop a lot of new drugs and, and, and those are sold all, all around the continent. And infamously, most of the major banking institutions are based, are headquartered in, in London as well, which was the reason why the EBA was put in Canary Wharf. The idea was that it would be about basically about stones throw away from the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the UK's regulator now, part of the Bank of England. There's always been a very close relationship between the UK banking regulators and the European body. They're basically the same people because most European banking is in London. Right, okay. If, for Britain's pharmaceutical industry, we're still developing a lot of new Mm. drugs after Brexit, as I'm sure we will be, they will have to be in line with EU standards uh, if we want to sell them to the rest of the... Yes, yeah, yeah. As presumably we do. I mean, the the pharma sector and uh, the NHS are very, very worried about uh, the potential for our standards to fall out of line with the rest of Europe. I mean, if, yeah, you're talking about a multi-billion pound market for our pharma products, which if everything w- went very badly over the next two years, potentially is up in the air. Then we move on to the banking is it exactly the same story there, except you replace the drugs with financial products? Yeah, pretty much, except it's less dangerous. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, we're told that a lot of products, for example, you know, if we make cars, we make clothes, whatever it might be, after Brexit, they will still have to adhere to European regulations if they want to be sold overseas. It sounds like this is exactly the same yeah, situation it's all here. part of the single market. It's all part of the single market. So, my, my question is, we won't be making those regulations anymore because we won't be in the EU, won't be in the European Parliament anymore. So what happens to those standards and what happens to British influence over those standards? Is is there any left? In terms of influence over those standards, uh, no is the honest answer. There are basically two options facing the UK. Either uh, we come to some kind of associate membership or similar to what looks like will happen with Euratom on uh, nuclear, the nuclear waste agency that we are not part of this organisation but in reality we are and so nothing changes and we uh, keep to the same standards as before in which case we don't have to duplicate a lot of work but we have no influence over the standards that come out of Brussels That's one option. It's the cheap one. Or we have to hire a lot of new regulators in this country to replace that regulatory function. You're probably talking about at least a thousand people. Well, if a thousand jobs are moving with the EBA and EMA. Yeah. So that's solely regulating the new British outside the EU banking and medical. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. How can it be so expensive if we're just saying, look, we're going to get out and then we will have our own regulatory bodies, but, you know, they're going to be broadly adhering to European standards. You're saying that we will have to build a new regulatory regime from scratch? Well, uh, not, well not, not from scratch. I mean, in the sense that... So the UK medicines and health uh, regulatory body that, or, that existed anyway mm. and works with the NHS, they are the largest national authority within the EU anyway. So all we would basically be doing is just increasing the size of that body. But it'll still entail hiring a thousand people. But that will still require a recruitment drive, which (laughs) is good news if you're doing a a medical science degree. (laughs) 
you mentioned in the piece, the EBA is quite new. It was formed in 2011. Yeah. So the, the idea for the EBA and two other agencies to regulate the financial industry, which emerged after the, the 2008 crash, the EBA was always intended to be in London. It was acknowledged in Brussels and across Europe that all major banking regulation in Europe, in Europe comes out of London because that is the centre of European banking. And does that provide an advantage to British banking as it's well? It's always been a huge advantage. It's part of the reason why, a small part of the reason why the UK and the city in particular has this kind of position of supremacy. Because if the regulators here... Because the regulators are here and there's always been this revolving door between regulators going, say, from the the European Commission and the European Parliament. They, you'd get uh, seconded out to um, to the EBA and then, obviously, there was also the other revolving door from the EBA and the, the Financial Conduct Authority that, to then get a lucrative job in the city. So there was always that the, the revolving door between the regulators and the regulated. Okay. And obviously... Part of the fear on our side must be that if the European Banking Authority shifts to Paris or to Frankfurt, it makes perfect sense that major banking institutions will shift more of their offices and functions to where the regulator is. Because you follow the regulator and that's how to, to the, some degree, yeah. the rules are then influenced. Yeah, because you need your I mean you need your people there to influence the regulators. Right. Problem, I see. Yes, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that you mentioned is about lobbying. As ever when you have uh, big changes in regulation, um that invariably means more law and more law means more lobbyists to try and influence it the lobbying sector was after being stunned by the result last june because most i think most lobbyists are very anxious to to build up their businesses in brussels have realized that this is kind of the last big party before brexit <laughs> uh, so this is a real potential bonanza for the business uh, in trying to pretend to tell companies how they can influence the talks and how they can prepare for what happens next. And well, it's what not are... just in Britain. So the big US law firm, Hogan Lovell's, has been, uh, I think, is on retainer for the Spanish government to try and get the European Medicines Agency to Spain after it leaves Britain in 2019. So this is European countries now looking at the the goodies that are up for grabs. Yeah, the booty. Yeah, right. the post-Brexit booty. <laughs> but what about British lobbyists or lobbyists on behalf of Britain? Are they, how are they getting involved? Well, initially after the referendum, the a number of large law firms were in the race to try and get large commissions with uh, Dexu and other government departments okay. uh, because obviously the the International Trade Department and the exiting the EU department were set up basically in a uh, local Starbucks near Whitehall. And when you build departments from scratch, the big law firms try and get a piece of the action. But every medium-sized and large company in London is frantically working out what the hell is going to happen. Um, what is known? Well, we, we know that we're, we're going to leave. We know there's going to be a bill presented at some point. Yes, yeah, so the European Commission has come up with the methodology for uh, how it will decide on the, the, the divorce bill, but is not planning to tell anybody what the precise figure is. And the, uh, I think this week, actually, Michel Barnier, the, the 
commission chief negotiator basically has imposed a almost trappist vow of silence on all of his team that they are not under any circumstances to mention how much the EU is going to be asking from Britain. Why? There, the rationale is that as soon as you name a figure, yeah. that will then be the focus of the haggling. Anything between 60 to 100 billion is the slightly outlandish figure that is being touted about uh, in most press reports at the moment. In reality, it's, I'd be absolutely astonished if it's in that range. I mean, they're going to have to present a figure at some point if they want a, uh, a settlement. Yes. Well, they so, presented well, at the very uh, last uh, minute. At the, and then... Yeah, at the moment, this is playing out a bit like a... Uh, a bit like a Sergio Leone Western, that uh, both sides are pointing guns at each other's heads. And the UK is saying, well, we don't want to agree the divorce bill until the very last minute. And the EU is saying, well, there's no agreement on the divorce bill, then we're not talking about a trade deal with you. The UK wants, desperately needs the trade agreement, and the EU really wants the really wants the cash so it's uh, a dilemma that we're no closer to uh, resolving and i suspect uh, it's going to be like this for at least another year another year of this uh, when it comes to the financial bill yes that would only give us uh, what have we been now let's see well it doesn't it give us a very long time to sort uh, out the trading agreement if we're well that i suspect that that will go on in the background anyway the line that is often used in normal discussions on le- EU legislation between the institutions is, um, oh, no- nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Right. And that is basically code for, we can see the deal, but nobody is prepared to compromise yet. So we're wasting our time being here for the time being. But if we come back in six months' time, when there's a, the sword of Damocles is over our head, then we'll be able to reach the deal. Okay. At three in the morning on a Tuesday night. <laughs> it feels like there's a lot of brinksmanship going on here. On, on both b- sides. On both sides. Yeah. Who comes off worse? The EU is the embattled wife in this relationship um, and has prepared um, an awful lot of documentation and briefing material uh, ahead of this week's, uh, the second round of talks that took place in Brussels this week. The UK, on the other hand, has uh, prepared virtually nothing. The three position papers published by Dexu last week were painfully thin on detail. That is by design. Right. Now, why is that? But Well, in, in large part, it's part of the game of brinksmanship. The UK wants to hear what the EU has to say before it commits itself. Is this why the talks are so short? Because no one is actually saying anything. Well, on the financial settlement and the Northern Ireland border, at the moment there is very little to say. On the citizens' rights and what will happen vis-à-vis the European Court of Justice and what will happen vis-à-vis Eurotom, those are less controversial so by definition, they will be quite easy to... There's a lot to talk about there. OK. So we're going to keep on having these rounds of talks with increasing degrees of brinksmanship for a while. Yeah. And we're not willing to say anything if they're not and they're not if we're not. Well, that's how... Yes, yeah, so far, yes. How does this end, Ben? <laughs> how does it end? And more importantly, uh, when, when, does, it when does it yeah. end? When does it end? Well, all things being equal, uh, it will end in very early 2019. And on the how? (laughs) Well, I've spent more time than I care to remember in fetid rooms in 
the EU institutions pouring through very boring European law. And eventually a deal gets done, but nobody really wants to know how it got done. Ben Fox. Uh, so there you go. That's that's Brexit. That's probably all you need to know. You can check in with us next series just in case there have been any developments. But from now on, put it from your mind. That's it for this episode of Page 94. And in fact, for this series of Page 94, uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening. And if you did, we will be back again at some point with more. But until then, uh, my name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this series has been produced by Matt Hill. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.